Welcome to the Rise to the Challenge podcast. Join me today. He's a prof- former professional baseball player and an Ironman athlete. It's Corey Harrington. How are you doing today, Corey? I'm good, Alex. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm excited to have you on the show to talk about your rise to the challenge. First thing we like to do with all of our guests, go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what were you involved in growing up? Sure. Um, so originally I'm from Lincoln, Nebraska. I currently live in the Seattle area with my wife and two kids, but originally, yeah, Lincoln, Nebraska. And, um, and from a young age, I was uh, uh, into sports and to anything that had to do with athletics was my jam. I, uh, I enjoyed football, basketball, baseball, you know, soccer when you're little, like anything, anything that had to do with sports, I was all about when I was a kid. Um, and this is, you know, back, back in the eighties and back in the eighties, you could play all the sports and do all the things. And nobody was asking you to specialize in, you know, baseball or basketball at the age of, you know, eight or nine or something. However it is these days, it's kind of crazy, but you know, back then you could, you could, uh, explore and, and kind of see what, um, what stuck and what you were good at. And so I, I kind of did, I did all those things. Um, and then as, uh, as high school progressed, I still played football, basketball, and baseball, but um, it became, you know, fairly apparent that baseball would be uh, a, a way to get a scholarship and go on to college and that kind of thing. So um, I did play all three sports all through high school, but then I um, took a scholarship to the University of Kansas. Um, I was a pitcher. I played, I played shortstop in high school and pitched, but I took a, pitch, a pitching scholarship to the University of Kansas and uh, um, didn't do much there. I ended up hurting my shoulder and having a surgery, um, and then another surgery. And then I was like, I don't think I belong on the mound anymore. I don't think my arm's going to hold up to that kind of, that kind of beating. So I, um, I left Kansas and I walked on at New Mexico state down in Las Cruces, New Mexico. And, uh, I was a, um, uh, a center fielder my first year, that would have been my sophomore year. And then I was a shortstop back to shortstop again, my junior year. And after that I was drafted by Seattle and I played a handful of years in the minor leagues. And um, yeah, that's kind of uh, the synopsis of my, you know, youth to professional career in a nutshell. Growing up in the Midwest, was it always something for you to be outdoors kind of experience that than just being inside? Um, well, you're from St. Louis, so you understand the weather patterns in the Midwest and they're, yeah. they're, ter- they're mostly terrible. So, um, you know, I was outside, I was always outside when you could be spring, summer, all those things, you know, shoot hoops in the, uh, driveway and playing catch with my dad and my brothers, um, you know, bring my younger sister out to the driveway and, you know, dunk on her on her eight foot basket to make me feel good. But, um, yeah, I mean, I was outside anytime I could be, I was outside and obviously winter's winter and in the Midwest, the winter can be pretty miserable. So, uh, that's basketball season and you're inside most of the time. What's the biggest thing that you learned about yourself playing sports at a young age and then getting into the high school stage? Um, you know, you know, I think, you know, you can talk about all the things that sports are, are good for the things that they bring out and, and kids and, uh, you know, learning and teamwork and, you know, sportsmanship and all, all those things, obviously sports, that's, that's one of the, um, you know, the, the huge positives about playing sports as a kid. I think that, uh, you know, looking back in hindsight, I can say that um, I, an unhealthy thing that I learned from sports um, moving up through the ranks was that it became my identity that um, that I found my value and my self-confidence from who I was as an athlete. And that's about it because that's how I was seen from the outside. And so therefore um, that became the way that I would find my value in myself was by uh, how I performed. Um, whether that was on the court or on the mound or whatever it was, but however I did that day was how I felt about myself. And, and looking back in hindsight, you know, 20 some years later, it's really easy to see how unhealthy that was. Taking that um, idea of identity, when you were around friends and stuff, did your attitude and how you were as an athlete carry over into the personal side where you couldn't separate the two in a way? Um, you know, I think in high school and probably before that, I mean, high school is awkward for everybody. Uh, I, I, well, not everybody, right? I guess there's, there's a group of people who it's not awkward for. And if you're on the outside looking in, then that's awkward for you. 
Um, and I would say that, you know, uh, I ran with a good group of people, um, but I always felt like my only reason for being there perhaps was because I was a good athlete. I didn't drink. I didn't, I didn't do, um, kind of a lot of the social things. I was probably awkward. I was, you know, all the things that most adolescents are. Um, but I did find that because I excelled in sports, it kind of gave me an avenue to, um, you know, quote unquote, hang out with the cool crowd. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what it, um, that's what I found myself, uh, finding my value. And once again, and I felt like I could hang, I could hang because of that, but then, you know, it, it took a turn, uh, when I was, you know, went to college and, and, you know, that's obviously like kind of gives you some confidence that you get a scholarship and you're going to go play and it kind of, um, you, uh, you kind of, um, create some distance between you and like the kids you played high school, you know, sports with, and you're like, you're, you're, you're moving up, you're moving up a level. And so it gives you a boost of confidence. And then, and then when I was drafted, the same thing, you know, you're, you're kind of, uh, continuing to move up. And, and I found that that, um, changed how I interacted with a lot of people because it did give me this, this sense of, I wouldn't say, I mean, maybe importance or the fact that I, I knew that coming from a smaller town in, in the Midwest, um, that, that I stood out and that, uh, you know, in a sense, maybe even rebelled against the fact that I thought I, I, you know, I didn't necessarily belong when I was there in high school and those kinds of things. Um, but now I felt like, man, like I, you know, I haven't made it, but I've made it pretty far. And, um, and, and I, that bled into my self-confidence for sure. And how I interacted with, with people. You can definitely take that concept and utilize it in other ways besides sports. Cause I noticed when I was going into college and stuff, anytime there was someone that maybe was an outlier or someone that didn't grow up the same way as a lot of us, they were all always like not targeted, but always looked at differently. And I always remember like the kids were being homeschooled and how they were coming up in the different, they were brought up a different way. And a lot of people that I was around, they kind of would be like, oh, he acts like that because he's homeschooled. And it's maybe one of the, it's kind of similar where if you come from a smaller town that you kind of looked at differently. And I think nowadays people are going through that, but it kind of makes them unique and you kind of have to see how their point of view is when it comes to these kind of things. Yeah. I think it's a two-way street, right? I think that you're seen as, um, as a little bit different perhaps. And, and anybody who's trying to find their way doesn't like to feel different. Doesn't like to feel like people are talking about them or looking at them a certain way. Um, you know, and it also plays into, I know I felt like, you know, um, at least, at least in, in collegiate baseball, you know, all the, all the, the powerhouse programs are, are down South. It's warm. It's like, that's where the players are. Yeah. And, and so though I was, you know, playing at a higher level, uh, I still had that self-doubt of, well, look where I'm from and, and high school baseball, isn't it what it is in Texas and, and Florida and Southern California. So how good am I? So there's always like this self-doubt creeping in. Like, even, even if you're performing, there's still this, like, am I, am I worthy? Am I good enough to be here? Um, so yeah, that's, uh, I think that's probably fairly normal and, and you, uh, get pigeonholed a little bit about where you're from and, and you do the same thing to yourself. Did you have anyone that inspired you or someone that motivated you that played a big impact in your life? Um, <laughs> the Atlanta Braves on TV at TBS every night. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think that, uh, that that was one thing that I, I mean, even like stupid stuff, like I, I, I no longer um, look up to these, you know, to professional athletes the way I did when I was a kid. But I think most kids who are in sports look up to these professional athletes because they want to emulate and be them and be like them. And, you know, I, I remember, you know, I'd watch, you know, Larry Bird and, you know, that kind of, you know, the Magic Johnson and, and I'd be inspired and I'd go out and practice and that kind of thing. But um, I think, yeah, truly uh, it wasn't necessarily a person, but I think I, I watched so many Braves games and it, you know, became like this, this thing that I would look forward to because they're on TV every day because they have TBS and, um, and they're playing under the lights and these huge crowds and, you know, and, and the back in those days, they were a really good team. So it was fun. I think that, that if anything, that, that was like uh, my motivation or what I looked up to or, or what I wanted to, what I wanted to be. I was trying to think of what player possibly you're going after with the Braves, but the only thing I could think of was Chipper Jones. But I'm like, what year is he talking about? And I don't even remember. Uh, yeah, Chipper right. Jones I would age, my, I'd age myself here, but I'll name like Terry Pendleton and, and uh, you know, 
Jeff Blauser, like some no-name guys. But when you watch the Braves every day, you're like, oh, I know these guys. But yeah. But I think that's so true because you look at, and I think nowadays people look at the, I think what with social media and the impact that these players have in a outside setting of on the field that a lot of these kids growing up idolize these players and it puts a lot of pressure on those players because one bad move and basically their careers over the way the public views them. And I think back then the players were the sport and that people were watching. So I think it's still continuing nowadays where teams are basically making a big impact on these young kids nowadays. Yeah. I mean, as much as they're making an impact on young kids. I mean, I think that uh, I got two little ones they are six and four and we were actually just had the conversation today about, do you guys want to start playing, you know, you know, rec baseball this summer. And, uh, and it's honestly been a, um, something that my wife and I have uh, not really looked forward to. My wife played um, collegiate volleyball at Michigan state, very high level. So she, she understands, we both kind of have a very you know solid understanding of, of athletics and, and how right. it works, you know, moving up. And, um, and what I was getting at with that is not only, you know, these teams and players, you know, impact the kids, but I think um, a lot of, a lot of parents are impacted too about what they want for their kids and how, yeah. how to push their kids. And now they're, you know, paying a lot of money for these lessons and all these things because they think that this is a possibility. And it is, it's not like it's not, but the percentages say it's not. And so to put that kind of pressure on your, on your kids is, um, is really rough too. And so I think, you, you know, the kid has it coming from a couple of different angles and, um, and parents, you know, obviously you want your kid to succeed and, and do well and, and excel in the things that they love. And that's been our biggest um, thing to keep in the forefront of our mind is like, what do our kids love? Just because me and my wife are really good athletes. If that's not their love and passion, then, then we will not push them in that direction because um, I just don't want it to be that way. I think there's a lot of expectations. Seriously, there's, there's a lot of expectations on our kids anyways, because they, uh, because of our, their parents, me and me and my wife are, we're good athletes too. And see, so there's an expectation that they're going to be these stud athletes and that's not what they choose. That's not what they choose. And I'm, I'm all for it. Teach me something about, you know, playing that guitar or something, I guess. I mean, they're at the age where they're going to get to that age where they're going to be finding their passions and finding the different things that they like to do so I think parents sometimes want to steer them into a direction but the kids have the power like they know if they're going to like it or not yeah I mean you'd like to think that the kids have the power right you're you're absolutely right we have to Um, say that we have the power sometimes yeah right right (laughs) so so yeah we're we're dabbling in that now so it's uh to be determined how this all goes I'm excited for them and also uh leery of getting into youth sports When you're always asked that question, what is your dream job? Was it always going to be a professional athlete or was there something else that you were wanting to pursue as you were getting older? Um, no, it was always a professional athlete. And, uh, and that was also probably the downfall in why I ended up struggling for a decade with, with opioids. I mean, let's get cut to the chase. I think that the fact that that was my dream and my goal and that is literally the thing that I was focused on. Um, you know, when that didn't come to fruition, when I wasn't playing under the lights for the Atlanta Braves or whoever it was, I had a real, real hard time figuring out, well, who am I now? And what am I supposed to do with myself? And where do I find my value? And who have I let down? Um, so a lot of things I carried in that one basket. And um, uh yeah. I mean, but that's from, from the time I was little, I think a lot of, a lot of athletes will say that probably um, that that's what they wanted to be. Like, why not? It looks like so much fun. And, and um, that was my thing. Looking at your collegiate baseball career and your time in college, what was the biggest thing you learned about yourself? Um, you know, I learned, uh, I learned at Kansas that I needed to work harder than I, than I had and that I was willing to. I, I realized that when I got there that um, I was a talented athlete, um, but talent would only take me so far. And my work ethic um, lacked. It definitely lacked. And you can't have big dreams and not work for big dreams. Like you can't, you can't like think you're going to make it to the top, but not really put in the work to make it to the top. 
And Kansas, that my first stint in college at Kansas was that for me. Uh, I, I tried to make excuses for the reason I wasn't playing and everything else. But in, but in hindsight, and after, you know, it didn't take too long, even at my next uh, uh, stop in New Mexico State to understand that I didn't put in the work. I, I, I wanted things to come to me and I wasn't willing to, I can get them. Was there someone that was giving you that like pep talk to like make yourself work harder and understand these things that you're thinking? Um, you know, I had a good buddy who was a stud, a stud player on my team at Kansas and he was my best bud. And he would always, uh, you know, without being a complete jerk, you know, kind of point out like where my flaws were. And I didn't really want to listen. I would rather make the excuse that the coaches don't like me, you know, all those kinds of things that you can make up to, uh, you know, to, to kind of cover up for, you know, where you're lacking perhaps. But, um, I mean, he's still somebody who's close to my life and, and, uh, he definitely was the guy who would look at me and, and tell me the truth. And even though that was kind of hard to, hard to see at the time. So. Did you ever think about what would happen if I couldn't play baseball anymore and like a backup plan? Um, you know, funny enough. Yes. And I, I did because uh, when I was at, when I was at Kansas, my freshman year and I hurt my shoulder at the end of that season and I had a, a, a surgery and I rehabbed that surgery. And then I came back, um, in the fall of my sophomore year and, uh, and my rehab protocol had, had, um, basically undid what the surgery was for. My, my shoulder was lax and loose again. And I had a decision on whether or not to have another surgery, the same surgery again and rehab for another eight months before I started throwing or, or my other option was like, I was kind of done. I wasn't playing. I didn't have, you know, the motivation, all these things were lacking but I had no idea what I would fall back on. And as, as crazy as it sounds, I mean, it's um, at that time I thought to myself, well, why don't I just drop out and move to the Florida Keys and work on a freaking boat? Like that was like my backup plan, wow. which is really funny to think that that would be my backup plan from playing ball and being in college and all those things. Um, and it's funny how your life comes full circle. Cause at a point after we got married, my wife and I ended up living in Key West, Florida and I worked on boats, <laughs> but, but it, but it became from a wholly different way. It wasn't because I quit baseball or anything else. So it's kind of funny how the world works that way. So you were going to try to be like a yachty or something. I don't know. If that I wouldn't say a yachty much, much, much dirtier than that. I think I just wanted to work on a, on a shrimp boat and sit, you know, and I, I don't know. I honestly don't, but I remember thinking to myself, like, what am I doing? Like, should I, should I have the surgery or not? And I really didn't want to, but I didn't know what the options were. And I like to, you know, you asked me earlier, like, what, what else did I want to be when I grew up? I had no idea. I didn't, I didn't know what I wanted to be. And so uh, that seemed like an option when you're, you know, 19 years old. Oh, hell, it was an option when you're 19 years old. <laughs> so going from TBS to Discovery Channel, working on a shrimp boat, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Landlocked Nebraska, but I sure love Discovery Channel. It did make me love the ocean. So maybe that was it. Well, you talked about full circle, and that's a lot of times what I have guests, and they kind of think when we're I'm asking them the questions, and they realize, wow, I really did the full circle. And it's you kind of mentioned it, that you talked about the dropout plan, but you didn't go with it, but you ended up back there somehow. And it's just crazy how the world takes us. Yeah. I mean, I ended up back in Key West and that was yeah, for sure uh, a, a weird coincidence, but um, you know, there's a, there's a lot that happened between the time I was in Key West and, and, uh, and where I am now. So. When you're getting dr- closer to the draft and stuff, did you kind of have talks with teams on who were potentially going to draft with you or were you kind of just tossing it up in the air and whoever takes me, takes me? You know, in, in college at any, you know, semi big university, you have uh, what's called um, scout day. And it's basically a one day tryout where, where scouts show up from all these teams, cross checkers from all these teams. And they come and you put you through a workout and, um, and, and you kind of get some feedback as to where you stand. And if you're, you know, somebody that they're looking at or not. And I did really well, like the scout days were great for me. And my skill set was, I was really fast. Um, I had a really good arm. I, um, you know, I was good at, you know, with the glove and defensively, and I wasn't always a great, um, a great uh, hitter, but, uh, you know, you can have a day and you know, baseball is one of those things where you can have a day any day. You can be really bad or really good, but some days you just have a day and, and on scout day I had a day. Right. So, um, I, I, 
I had, uh, you know, a decent amount of communication back and forth between a hand, you know, a handful of different clubs and, you know, filling out the paperwork and all those kinds of things. And anybody who's been through it kind of understands that like there's this process that takes place and you fill out all these pamphlets and you fill them out for all these teams and they look, look basically identical with a different team's logo on it. And, you know, you fill out some stuff for MLB and, and that kind of thing. But I, 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 um, you know, I was drafted in the 17th round. It wasn't like I was a top, you know, three round guy, you know, getting a ton of money. It, it, um, uh, yeah, that, that was just, that wasn't the case. And so it wasn't like I'm sitting there, you know, having these negotiations. So I didn't even have an, an agent or anything like that. So. You kind of talked about the confidence that you had or the lack of confidence when you got drafted, did it kind of give you a boost in a way? Like, wow, I actually made it in a way. And I have an opportunity to follow my path and follow my dreams. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was a huge, um, you know, jolt to the system of like, all right, like this is, I didn't, I wouldn't have foreseen this two years ago when I was at Kansas. I would have never foreseen this. I was, I never played. I, I just, um, that wasn't how, what I thought was possible. And so it, it absolutely did. I mean, I started, I started to learn, you know, a work ethic and, and what it took to, to improve and get better and all those things in the weight room and on the field, all those things. Um, but it definitely gave me a jolt of confidence that, um, a, um, I was able to kind of, you know, achieve this thing, be drafted and get a chance to play. Um, but I also was fairly realistic of the fact that I think at that time, you know, one in 11 guys who got drafted were going to make it to the big league. So, so just because you, you know, get drafted and, and you're now playing professionally and they're paying you and they're paying you barely anything, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's, there's still a huge hill to climb. And I think that's uh, not always uh, understood by, you know, people on the outside that the baseball is one of those sports where, man, you, you get drafted and all of a sudden, you know, there's the rookie ball, low, a short season, a high, a double, a triple, a, and then you're in the big leagues. I mean, there's a lot of steps and runs to climb and uh, it takes a lot of things going the right way. And a lot of, uh, you know, um, work on your part and performing and putting up numbers on your part. Talk about that beginning journey when you're playing in the minor leagues with the teams, what's going through your mind and how are you processing everything that was happening? Um, you know, the, there was a huge change in the fact that uh, you're playing every day. Like that's, that's the biggest physically and mentally. That is the biggest hurdle. That was the biggest hurdle for me. Um, and not to mention when I was at New Mexico state, I'll go back to those, but at New Mexico state, my coach was, um, he was very much, uh, he let us do our thing. He treated us like adults. That doesn't always happen in collegiate programs. Sometimes you're very much micromanaged, but our coach was, was a stud, um, who had coached at Oklahoma state for a handful of years and been in the college world series had a lot of success. And he treated us as if we're adults. He respected us and we could make our own decisions and he, he trusted us. And, um, and I, and I thrived in that. And then you get drafted and you get put in a minor league system and, um, and you kind of feel like all of a sudden you're being micromanaged again. Mm-hmm. You know, you're kind of treated like you are the low end of the totem pole. And, and, uh, and that was a tough transition for me, just in the, in the mindset of like how I was treated before. And it almost seems like it should have been the other way. Like now you're paying me. I should, I should have some freedom in, in this and, and be able to do, you know, things kind of my way. But at the same time, man, you need to impress people. You need to, you know, show that you can be coachable and listen. And, and it's just as much a business as it is a game at that point. And you need to make sure that the people who are making decisions look favorably on you. I didn't do a good job of that, but that, that would have been the goal. In hindsight, I would have done a better job. Um, but yeah, the, the everyday, playing every day was, was the biggest change. Physically, your body breaks down so much quicker when you're playing every day and not to mention you're practicing before every game. So minor league baseball is you show up at the park at, you know, before noon and you are putting in work and practicing in the cages and your game starts at seven o'clock, but you've been there all day. So by the time you're out of there, you put in a 12 hour day. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, physically, yeah, that's a drain. But then you think about trying to stay on point uh, mentally um, and it becomes a really tough task. Uh, and, um, you, if there's, if there's another huge lesson that I you know can look back on that I wish I would have, uh, um, uh, understood is that man, asking for help, like a psychologist, like under like baseball is such a mental game. And a lot of, a lot of sports are, especially when you're at a high level, like everybody's skilled, everybody is athletic, everybody has these tools, but then it, it becomes, how do you, um, how do you use your mind to like hone those skills? 
And, and just like uh, I would find out later in my life, um, you know, asking for help, working with a therapist, working with, you know, professionals who can help you, you know, with your mental side of things, it's taboo and it's still taboo in sports. Maybe a little bit less so since, you know, since back in the day, but it's still one of those things that you feel weak. You feel weak asking for help in that side of, of life and that side of um, athletics because you just, you see it as a weakness or you think other people see it as a weakness and you're going to be the guy like, what do you got to see the psychologist for you nuts? You know, like that, those kinds of like jabs mm-hmm. are real. And as, as a young, young kid, you know, you don't want to put yourself through that kind of ridicule, but in hindsight, man, I think that the biggest difference in a lot of, uh, you know, guys at the A level in the big leagues is the fact that the guys at the big leagues can perform day in and day out mentally, just as well as they can physically. Cause if you head to a minor league ballpark, you will see amazing plays, amazing athletes. The consistency is the thing that is lacking. And I think that consistency comes from, you know, your mind space. I think we still see that today where people are afraid to ask for help, even in the business world. I think if you look at the big CEOs, they had to ask for help to get to where they are today. And if they didn't, they probably wouldn't be where they're at right now. But I think it plays mentally. It's a mental game that it's a struggle, vulnerability for these people to ask for help. And I think I've had that hard time where asking for help because I didn't want to show that I was weak. I wanted to learn the mistakes on my own and learn from it. But over time, I'm like, it's better just to ask for help instead of just let not doing it at all. Well, I think this is a good segue into the meat and potatoes of what I'd like to talk about, I guess. Um, and that's, that's the fact that, um, you know, in 2007, I was playing independent ball, just one last straw trying to get picked up and see if I could make things happen. And I hurt my shoulder. And um, I stand at the plate one night and I uh, see a high fastball. I take a big swing. I make high contact or I make contact and my, uh, my shoulder um, dislocates. Um, and so uh, I don't hit home runs. I was, that's not my thing, but the ball ended up going over the fence. I'm laying in the batter's box and, uh, and I, I know that something's not right. I'm obviously in pain. My arm is just dragging. And um you know, I make my way around the bases and as, as I'm making my way around the bases, uh, you know, the realization, um, is that like, this is, this is likely the end, Corey, this you're 26 years old and, um, that's old in the minor leagues, especially when you're in an in independent ball and, you know, this could be the end and, uh, who knows, like this is likely, you know, something that might, uh, require surgery. And so I just, I felt terrible. I felt like, all of a sudden my life just changed just like that. And um, so I felt terrible that night. And after the game, I'm in the locker room and a teammate of mine says, um, Hey, you know, you're going to be in a lot of pain. Uh, This might help. And he hands me a pill. And um, I took the pill and I had, I had never done drugs. I had never, I was not a, I didn't drink much. Like I was as straight and narrow as they come. I mean, in high school, I never drank. I never smoked weed. I, I, I literally was like the all American kid. And, um, and this one night, uh, after a game when I'm 26 years old, maybe I'm 27 at that point. Um, I remember going home and feeling like I should be feeling terrible because about an hour ago, I was devastated about this is probably the end of my career. And what's and like, literally like the, 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 you open the can of worms, like, what is life now? Like, what is, what does this mean? And how am I going to move on from this? And I remember that night um, feeling like not only was my shoulder, not physically in pain, but man, I, I had numbed myself from those depressing feelings I was feeling about an hour before. Um, and that, ended up being uh, the beginning of a 10-year slow struggle with abusing opioids and the darkness. And it was a secret that nobody in my life knew. Um, so when you say asking for help is sometimes hard and being vulnerable is hard, it took me 10 years and a lot of scary moments um, to get to that point where I decided that this wasn't going to be my future anymore and that I needed help um, if I wanted to get my life back. And that takes and an extreme amount of um, vulnerability uh, to be able to, to state that to the people in your life and ask for help. And um, yeah, so that was, that was uh, just over three years ago. 
when that um, baseball player gave you that pill, were you questioning what he was giving to you or where your mind was, I'll, I'll just take it and whatever it is, it's just going to, I'm not going to. Yeah. Again. You know, I didn't ask him what it was. And honestly, I'd had surgeries before. It wasn't like I hadn't had, you know, pain medicine before, um, but pain med, pain meds after surgery were, were just pain medicine. I didn't know. I didn't know if it was a Tylenol. I, I didn't know the difference in, in any of those things. I just knew it was, it was what I'm supposed to take after surgery. Never abused anything, never did anything. It was just, I took them as you were supposed to. And uh, that was that. It was just medicine. Like like most people in the world probably think of medicine. That's how I thought of it. And this one night, like I, I, I didn't realize what this pill would do. I honestly, it could have been an ibuprofen for all I knew. The mm-hmm. fact that I trusted him and took it, you know, when he was like, you're going to be in pain, like this is help. And he pulls it out of his locker. I'm thinking, well, why, why question this? Like, He's trying to help me. He's, I, I can't imagine he's doing anything besides trying to help. And so, um, yeah, I mean, in hindsight, I should have asked more questions, but at the same time, like, I was in a pretty rough spot and my brain probably wasn't working the way that it, you know, it, it should have been. And, um, and so, yeah, it, there wasn't, I didn't question it. Um, and, um, yeah, I didn't question it at all. Talk about those years in using the drugs. What, how bad did it get in your life and how did it affect you personally, emotionally, physically? Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, since starting to share my story about six months ago, um, you know, there is a a lot of people want to compare uh, somebody's, um, you know, like what was their low? Like what, what was the lowest of low? And, and I will go into that because I had a few. Um, but I, I, I have been reluctant to try to compare stories because I feel like comparison, like is a, is a, is a terrible thing. And, and I'll go into this in a little bit, but I think that, you know, uh, comparison on anything makes you feel like, well, my, I don't have it that bad. Somebody else is worse than myself or, or I don't have a problem because I'm not the guy on the street that's, you know, scorn heroin and, and living in a, you know, in a tent or something like that. But mine was a slow, a slow process. Uh, you know, it started with that one pill and I don't know how many people who have been in my shoes of, of, uh, abuse and addiction have, you know, can remember that moment but I can, and I can still remember it very vividly of the locker room and how I felt and all those things. But that said, it wasn't as if all of a sudden, like I started taking, you know, opioids the next day, or, or, you know, I had surgery that following, following the season. So I ended up playing for most of the season until I had a surgery and that was a few months. And then I get prescribed, you know, medicine, medicine, pain meds, opioids. And, um, and though they're needed for, you know, post-op pain uh, uh, management, I, I also remembered that, you know, this made me feel better. This helped mask and helped me cope with some of these feelings. And I'll tell you what, those feelings didn't get any better in the course of the, of the season. Like I knew that this was like the end of my career. I'm still, you know, you know, struggling with what that looks like and how do I, how do I proceed from this? And so those became um, a way for me to cope. And, uh, and I'll say that in my story, it became a series of unfortunate events. Uh, and slowly over time, I was prescribed um, more uh, because I ended up having a, um, a, a herniated disc from a going, you know, wakeboarding on a lake with some friends and, and I herniated a disc. And, and that um, honestly was probably like the, the nail in my coffin, um, which because it opened the door for access to these pills on a more regular basis. And, um, yeah, so I should state too, I was, I was married when this all started, I had been married for, um, three years. So my, my wife, we're still together. I mean, we will go into that a little bit too, but you know, um, it wasn't like I'm just by myself. Like I, I, um, I'm married, but, but she doesn't know that I'm thinking about these pills in a different way other than medicine. And, um, and, you know, through a few episodes with my back and then just, just understanding that um, that I could access these and they were making me feel better. They were making me feel better. I didn't, I wasn't having to deal with the things that, that I didn't even know how to deal with. I didn't know who to ask. Like this goes back to like asking for support, finding like a therapist, like talking to professionals, like not have you sitting in your own shit and like, like talk about things and figure things out. And, and there's, there's help out there, but it's so taboo to, uh, to, to ask for that help. Um, and so my, my story went on for 10 years and it slowly 
you know, in the beginning, you can normalize yourself. You can say there are pain meds. It's no big deal. They're prescribed. Then you can say, well, hey, I'm only taking them, even though I'm not in physical pain anymore, I'm taking them on the weekends, on a Friday or Saturday night, just like somebody's having a drink. Same thing, normalize it. And then the progression is, well, okay, I'm out of them. I don't need them any for anything, but I have a back issue. And I can go in and, and kind of, you know, plead my case and, and go to a clinic and say, hey, I'm having an episode. And so you start to get pills that way. And then it progresses to you're stealing them from your family, your friends, um, from strangers. And, and yet you can still normalize these things, which is totally crazy, but you can, you can say like, I still have a job. I mean, obviously this is, you know, years in the making, this is a 10 year thing that I struggle with. So through that time, like I, I've become a professional, I'm done with baseball, but like, I never um, worked through the fact that when I got done with, with baseball, I had no idea who I was. I, lo- I lost all my self-confidence, my self-worth, my self-value. Everything that I had tied my identity up in as a baseball player was gone. And I had no idea how to deal with it. And so my way of dealing with it was, well, these, these pills, they, they, they found me at a time when I was low and I realized that they helped me cope. And so they became my way of coping and not having to deal with um, all the things in my life that I was uncertain about and that I had you know, um, lost in self-confidence and, um, and, and I found myself years in, um, you know, knowing that I had a problem, but still not being able to necessarily admit it because I couldn't find many examples of people like me. You could find the examples of a Brett Favre, somebody who was, you know, the high, high end athlete professional who, you know, came out and said, I've been abusing, you know, pain pills and, but he has entourage of people and he has everything at his doorstep to help him through this. And it didn't seem like a big deal. Even in the media, it didn't seem like it was a big deal. It's like, Brett, you know, it, it's met with sympathy a little bit. And the other example you can find is, like I said before, the, the homeless guy in the street who just OD'd from heroin. And he's, you know, that's not me. I'm, I'm neither of those people. I'm like in this gray area. And so I can't find my example. So I'm feeling extremely isolated and alone and like what the hell is wrong with me like why why am i struggling with this and i don't see other people struggling with this and so it takes you to a place of shame and isolation and um and yeah it it spirals um i'm now a huge believer in the fact of keeping promises to yourself like build self-confidence like that is like my definition of self-confidence is like on a on a regular basis if you keep promises to yourself you build your self-confidence. Mm-hmm. And over the course of that 10 years, um, I would try, I would try to quit because I knew I had an issue. I had, I had this, this was not okay. And I would say, I'm going to quit, but then I couldn't. And, and every time that I couldn't keep that promise, I was destroying my self-confidence. So it works just the same. If you say you're going to do something and you don't do it, you destroy your self-confidence. You don't just stay here. Oh, yeah. You start to destroy your self-confidence. And I got caught in that cycle for a long time to the point where I, I didn't know who I was anymore. I, um, I couldn't look at myself in the mirror. And, you know, it, you know it, it got to the point where I was stealing from anybody and everybody I knew. If I had them, I could not take them. When in the beginning, I could take them just as like chilling out on a Friday night. Um, and it became over time the point where I, I couldn't do that anymore. I couldn't, um, uh, you know, manage it that way. And that's what, that's what drugs do. That's what opioids do to you. I mean, they change your brain and your chemistry and you have this need for them because it's truly taking the place of what the, you know, there's supposed to be chemicals in your brain that are making you happy. And they're, you know, like filling you with, you know, those good feelings and, this changes your biochemistry of your brain and it, it destroys those connections. And so it becomes the thing that you find um, that you find, you know, your, your, your way of, of coping and relaxing and anything else. So. During this time, you, you talked about you were married. Did your wife notice any behavioral changes with you or noticing anything different than before you started taking opioids? Yeah. You know, um, we talk about this often. Um, and I talk about it with other people in my life too, because I, um, you know, I, I was a totally high functioning addict. 
you know, there's also this, this, uh, you know, whether you call it abusing drugs or addicted to drugs, like that's the other things I would Google all the time of like, well, do I have a problem? Am I abusing them or, or am I addicted to them? And it's just like, it's a mind game that you play with yourself. And, and at the end of the day, it doesn't freaking matter because if you're abusing drugs in the beginning, like it all takes you to the same place in the end. If you don't get help, like you will eventually be at that place where it could take your life. So it's a slow, it's a slow progression for some and it's quicker for others. But at the end of the day, it takes you to the same place. Um, yeah. And so my, my wife, um, no, she never knew. And the, the reason I think that, uh, so many people in my life had no idea is one is because you can hide pills really easily. It's not like being an alcoholic where you smell like booze. Like it's, it's not easy to hide a bottle of booze or if you're, you know, you're drinking, like it, it's just easier to see somebody maybe, uh, that said, it's normalized, right? So you can go to the bar. Like people, alcohol is a very normal thing, and people are are accepting of the fact that you know you go out to, and drink. That's a total total normal behavior. Um, these pills are not. These pills, you know, when I started stealing them, like that's a felony. Like the fact that I could try and normalize the fact that like I don't have a problem. There's a problem, a because you're using them when you don't need to, but b if you got caught doing this, you go to prison. Like there's a problem there. Like, like I should be able to recognize that in myself yet. I didn't want to, I didn't know how to, I didn't know. I I just couldn't process and and ask and ask for for help. And so you continue to normalize those things. But um, my wife never knew um, because I was high functioning and because I, um, I was so straight and narrow as growing up through my entire life that that I was the last person that anybody would think would have had this, this, this struggle, this issue. And so even if, even if somebody thought I was maybe off, man, I would be given the benefit of the doubt every time because there's no way Corey Harrington would be this guy. There's no way that he could possibly have an issue with drugs. I was just, I was put on a pedestal that way from, from the time I was little because, because of athletics, right. That goes, it ties back into the fact that I was a really good athlete and that um, that's how I was seen. And I was seen as like, man, I had it all. And, uh, and how could I struggle with something like this? When you were getting closer to the 10 year mark, when did you know the time was now that you needed to make a change or I need to kind of admit that I have something going on and I need to start getting better? Yeah. I mean, um, you know, there was a handful of lows that should have made this, uh, happen sooner. Um, but it didn't, uh, you know, I stole my dog's fentanyl patch off of her after a surgery and put it on myself to the point where I I basically almost OD'd, um, you know, like stupid, terrible decisions like that, like should be the, the moment that I was like, what the hell are you doing, man? You need help. But, um, but it's not that easy. It's not that easy. Uh, I, I sat in my bed for thousands, literally thousands of nights next to my wife, like wanting to say it, like Corey, tell her, tell her you're struggling with this. Tell her you need help. And, and I, there was a couple of times there was, I was so close, so close to just say it. Like the, the, the fact that this is like this battle in my head all the time and I couldn't say it, but um, you know, what brought me to the point where I finally asked for help. And, um, and I want to touch on that too, when we're uh, done with this about asking for help. Um, But my wife and I, we were, we were moving from Nebraska out here to Seattle three and a half years ago for a big life change. We had a lot going on. Um, but we were moving to Seattle and I, and I moved out here with my younger brother. He helped me drive a U-Haul. So halfway across the country, I had been struggling really bad. My, my dad had just had surgery. I was stealing his pills. Like I just, I was really scared about my future and who I was, who I was. And like, where is this going to take me? Like, where does this end? And, um, and I got out here, we unpacked the U-Haul and, um, and I just felt, I mean, (laughs) the, the Seattle rain and dreariness, um, when we first got here probably didn't help, but, um, I just felt like what, what the hell is going on with you and, and where does this end and you need help. And so I woke up the next morning and, um, and I went to get a coffee for my brother and I, and I was sitting in a parking lot of a grocery store waiting for the Starbucks to open. And I just started bawling and it's, you know, it's dark out, it's pitch black out. I'm bawling I'm by myself in this parking lot, sitting in my car. And I, and I just Google an opioid hotline and, um, and somebody answered and I just, I just blurted out, you know, amongst like sobbing, like I need help. I've been, been abusing opioids for 10 years and I need help. And, um, and, and, you know, I'd never said it out loud. Like literally in 10 years, I'd never said it out loud or even really said it to myself. Like, you know, allowed myself to think that this is that big of a deal. And uh, the guy on the other line said, um, okay, um, 
you know, uh, where are you located? And I told him where, and he said, okay, well, we don't service your area, but I'll connect you to the, you know, my counterpart who does. And I was like, okay. And he connects me. Um, but there's nobody, it's a deadline. And, um, and so I just felt like, Jesus, like, I just, I just had the, the guts to call and, and ask for help. And, and, uh, there's nobody there to meet me. And so I, I decided, um, I need to go home to my house as fast as I can and wake my brother up. My brother is about 10 years younger than me. And so he's looked up to me my entire life, you know, once again, because I'm, you know, the all American kid and I, you know, professional athlete, all these things that this is what's going through my head is like, now I got to tell my younger brother that I need help. But it ends up that, I mean, he was the person I was supposed to tell because I wake him up at five 30 in the morning and he is like, what the hell are you doing, man? I'm sleeping. I was like, I need to tell you something. And, and I'm bawling. And he's like, what's, what's going on? And I just, I uh, proceed to vomit everything of, um, of my drug abuse on him and tell him, and it's the first time I said it to anybody. And, uh, um, and, and it, the real impetus for this, for, for me asking for help was the fact that I couldn't ask my wife and, uh, and my kids to move all the way across country to a place that they're not familiar with, with no support system and her not know this about me because I was nervous about where my life was going. And, and that just, it, that was the final tipping point of like, this doesn't seem fair. It's no longer about you. Like you can, you know, I've been abusing these in the darkness for in secrecy for a decade, but this is, seems like the point where if things went wrong, Corey, you would be just, how could you do this to your wife after, you know, 14 years of marriage that she doesn't know this and ask her to come out here and what, how, what happens you OD. And next thing you know, like her life is just flipped upside down. I, I just, that was the moment that I was like, I, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Do you feel if you didn't move that the outcome would be completely different? Do you feel that you would still have been hiding it from your family if you were still in Nebraska? Or do you feel moving to Seattle was kind of like a hidden blessing because you were able to kind of be able to speak to your brother about it and be able to eventually tell your wife everything that you've gone through? You know, it's really hard to say, right? Like it's, it's really hard to play that game of like, what if this or what if that? And the thing that gives me confidence that, um, that I would have asked for help is the fast is the fact that I asked for help. I mean, I think that in so many of these stories, the reason that somebody gets help and gets, um, gets their life saved is because they got, they got caught, they got found out. And then that, um, you know, that was the reason that, that, you know, it was their secret and they were hiding it, but somebody caught them. And that never happened to me. And so what gives me confidence that I, that, that I had it in me to like ask for help at some point that I, that, I, you know, that hopefully I would have asked for help is the fact that, that, um, that it was a decision that I made myself, that it wasn't because I was found out. It wasn't because of any of those things. It gives me great confidence to know that like, Corey, you thought more about, it took you 10 years, but you value yourself and your life enough to say that like this has to be the end and you need help. And so I find, I do find solace in the fact that, and confidence in the fact that, that it, it, it was my decision that I, that I was able to muster the courage at that moment to ask for help. How did your brother react after you told him about all of this? Um, he, probably the, the best way possible. And I, and it's, and I'll say that in, in the fact that it wasn't like, um, Oh my God, like I'll do anything for you. It, it was that, but it was also, you don't have a problem. Like they're like, Corey, they, they, that's, you don't have a problem. Like, like plenty of people take pills here and there and like that. I don't, I don't, and it forced me to, um, to really out myself to be like, no, like I had to like, instead of defend myself, I had to like prosecute myself and say, Casey, this is the reason. These are the reasons. These are the things that I've done. This is how long this has been going on. Like it wasn't just as easy as like, I need help. And then I met with like, okay, well, let's get you help. I like had to plead my case and say, I know you think of me as like your big brother who couldn't possibly have this problem, but I'm telling you I do. And I need help. And so it was really, um, you know, it, it, I look back and I'm like, it, it's exactly, it's exactly what I needed. <laughs> I needed to be, um, I needed to do that. I needed to, to be able to say those things. Do you think that if he was looking back at 
the years pass and looking at that moment, do you think he wish he reacted differently and kind of believed you right away? Or do you think that's still how he would have reacted no matter how you told him? Yeah, I think, I think that's just how it would have gone. I think that that's just, you know, and relationships are, are, you know, funny that way, but that's, that's, that's how it would have gone. And there's no, there's no, like, it was the way that it was supposed to happen. I am not a big believer in things happen for a reason. I, that is not like my motto or anything like that. But I, uh, I had to work through the fact that my wife wasn't the first one to find out that that would, that I didn't tell her first. Cause I felt really guilty about the fact that, you know, she's the one who should know. She is the one that I should have told that I wanted to tell so many times. And so there was some guilt um, that, that resided with the fact that I, I wasn't able to tell her, but at the end of the day, my wife and I have talked about this plenty too. It's like, it doesn't, it does not matter. It, all that matters is that I ask for help. Like, and that there's not like the perfect person to tell, like the moment that you find yourself with the strength to ask for help, you got to reach out to anybody you can. Like, there's not, there's never a perfect moment when you're going, when you're going to, you know, ask for help for something like this. Like if you have the, the guts to say it at that time, just say it to whoever's there, because the moment that you say it out loud, it takes a lot of the power away from it. So talk about that moment where you finally revealed to your wife what you've been going through. What was her reaction and how did it change the dynamic of your guys' relationship? Yeah. Um, I mean, so I flew home the next day because I was flying back to Nebraska to pick her up and the kids and, and, and fly back to Seattle. And so my brother was staying in Seattle at our house while I would go back. And, uh, and so I told my brother, I said, uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm literally like, I, from the moment that I told my brother, the moment that I called this hotline, I, I couldn't stop crying. Like there's so many emotions that just like, it just, that wouldn't stop. Like I, I could be fine for five minutes and then literally just out of nowhere, I would just start bawling. And, um, and so much of that was A, the relief, but B, like now I'm, I'm met with the fear. Of like, what does my life look like? What does this mean for, for my relationships, for my marriage, for my kids, for like my future, like all of these things, like. I know I need help, but like now, now what? And, and there is a huge, huge amount of fear that, um, that creeps in because man, now you have no idea. Now it's not in your hands. Like how, how is the world and your people and your circle gonna, gonna accept you or, or deal with this? And I had, um, I had really, I didn't think it was going to be well. I mean, I think that the fact that, uh, it was so hard for me to ask for help in the first place was, was because, um, nobody thought that, that could, it could be me. So, so, so coming out and asking for help when, you know, it's going to blindside everybody, literally everybody in your life was what it made it, you know, even more difficult for myself. But so I fly back and I'm bawling the whole entire time. And I'm, uh, I just, I can't stop thinking that like, this, this could be the end of my marriage. I think, I, I think she'll meet me with love and compassion, but I could never know that. Like, you can never know how somebody's going to meet you when you come and tell them something like this, you've been lying to them for a decade. And they're the closest person in your life. Um, but I told my brother, I said that, Hey, I've wanted to tell her for so long and I haven't been able to. So I need you to be my backstop here. And if I haven't texted you by nine o'clock tomorrow night and said that I'm talking to Nikki, then you need to call her and tell her Corey has something to tell you. I was like, I, I like this, there's no more like dragging this on. This has to happen. So Casey, if, if I don't have the guts to do it, and you haven't heard from me, you need to call her and say, Corey has something to tell you. So um, it didn't take that, but I felt like that's what I needed to do that. I didn't trust myself. I, I wanted to ask for help so many times and I just didn't trust that I could do it. Um, and that's, you know, that's the, uh, a decade of destroying my, my self-confidence had led me to the fact that I couldn't even trust myself. Um, and, and, you know, I was met with uh, um, when I told her, um, it took a long, it did take a long time for me to say it. She, you know, she's sitting there and I'm bawling and she's like, what is going on? You know? And, and finally I, I blurted it all out and, uh, and we talked for, you know, seven hours until, you know, four in the morning and, and uh, she was devastated and sad and angry and, you know, literally every emotion you can think of that would, you know, be packed into that moment. Like th those are all the things like, um, and so we ended up, uh, she's like, I'm not moving to Seattle until we talk to somebody like we need to, we need to talk to a, a therapist, a professional, like I need to, I need to like wrap my head around this and what does this mean and what is our future? And so, um, so we got into see a therapist the next day and we spent hours, you know, going over all of this as, as much as you can and putting a game plan in place and, and, uh, you know, finding, 
you know, uh, uh, how we're going to put a roadmap together, basically, of how, how is, how is the future going to look? And, and, uh, um, and that's how we proceeded. And honestly, I, I look back and I, you know, because I was high functioning, um, and, uh, I, I knew that the moment that I said it out loud, like that I was done with it. Like, and I, I think I knew that all along, like if I could just tell somebody that I'm struggling with this, like that, 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 that would relieve the power and the strangle that it has on me. Like, I just need somebody else to know I can't be accountable myself, but if others in my life know that I will find the grit to make that be the end. Uh, I couldn't do it for myself, but if other people know that I want, then, then I am confident that this can be the end. And it doesn't mean that there's not a ton of like hard work and therapy and, and figuring all those things out as well. But um, it did make me feel like that. The moment that I said it out loud, I felt like I could do anything. So I was like, I've been wanting to do this for a decade. And this is literally the hardest thing I've ever done was ask for help. And there's nothing I cannot do if I can do this right now. So, um, yeah, I mean, so, so, so with my wife, I mean, it, it took a long time. It took, it took a lot of, um, of therapy and talking and, um, you know, I think one of the biggest, uh, moments was when she, she kind of realized like, I didn't do this to her. I, my goal was never to hurt her with this. Like this was my own struggle that, um, was devastating me. And it was never, um, it never came from a place of me trying to hurt her. It wasn't about her. It was about my own, um, issues that I hadn't worked through. And this was my coping mechanism and, and those lies and those deceits over 10 years of, of not telling her this, like it, it wasn't, it wasn't done to her. It just so happened that she was collateral damage with it. Talk about your road to recovery. How has it been for you these last few years? Have you had those times where you thought about going backwards or has it been full focus towards the future and staying clean and sober? Um, it has been full focus on staying clean and sober. That is not to say that in the beginning, it's really freaking hard because um, like I said, like these pills change the bio, you know, chemistry of your brain and it is hard to feel things. You, the things that maybe once would make you happy, like why doesn't it make you happy or the things that are really hard in your life? Holy shit. Like they really suck and it hurts to feel these things. Like, like those pills help me stay kind of at this even keel. Mm-hmm. And, and now I'm feeling, I'm feeling the breath of emotions from the good and the bad. And it really sucks. Like it really sucks. And I felt like it's much easier to feel those bad things because the good ones, it's really hard for me to, my brain isn't making those chemicals for 10 years. Hasn't made those chemicals that make you happy that give you joy. And so uh, it was, uh, it, it, therapy was such a, uh, an amazing and, and obviously life-changing thing because we were able to talk about these things and talk about the fact that like, Corey, these, these pills, like that's what they stole from you. It'll come back. Like it will come back. You have to fight for it. Like you have to say like, you will not do this. You will never take a pill again. And eventually you will have those chemicals be back in your brain, the dopamine, all these things that you are, are lacking, they'll come back and you will feel these things, these good feelings again. And, and, and it was the truth. It, it, it just, it took a long time for my brain to heal. Um, but, but through therapy, it, you know, I started to deal with the things I had dealt with in, in, in 15 years of, of all the, the, the issues that everybody has, everybody has things in their life that are hard and their struggles. And if you don't ask for help and talk through these things, like, I'm not saying you're going to become an addict, but man, you're going to find ways to cope because if you don't work through them, then, then you're, you're just pushing them under the rug and they will, they will find their way out. What are the things that are keeping you focused moving forward? Do you have goals that you're trying to achieve? Are you trying to make up for lost time? Or you talked about in reading your bio, you still participate as an athlete. Does that keep that drive going since you lost it from being a baseball player? Um, so, yes, absolutely. I think that uh, um, one is I love physical fitness because uh, – it, it creates the, the, the good feelings. Like, like, you know, you go out, like it creates the dopamine and it makes you feel good to go out and work out and move your body. 
Um, the second thing it does is it, it builds confidence because it is, it is one of those things where you can go out to the gym or, or, or for a run or for a swim or any of these things. And there is tangible. You can see your growth. You can see like you have to promise now, like I am making gains. I am doing this. I am more fit. I am, I am this and I am that. And it is, uh, like it's almost a, a visual feedback or like your, your body is giving you the feedback. Like, man, you can do hard things. Like you can continue to do hard things and you're keeping promises to yourself. And like, um, and that's a really good tangible thing in fitness. Um, but, I, but I think that one of the, the biggest things for me was the fact that over so much, over so much of that 10 years, I couldn't keep a promise to myself. And so um, I, uh, I, you know, um, I had seen an Ironman before, you know, probably a decade before and Ironman world championships on TV every year. I wasn't a triathlete. I wasn't any of those things. I didn't run. I didn't bike. I didn't swim, but I always, um, you know, remembered a couple of the stories of these amazing freaking people who do this and crazy, you know, endurance race of 2.4 mile swim and 112 mile bike and then run a marathon. And, and these stories are inspiring because the, the things that these people have went through and still are, you know, managed to find it in themselves to do these, these races. It was incredible. It was totally inspiring. Never thought that I would be one, but after I, um, you know, asked for help and I thought to myself, like, this is the hardest thing that I've ever had to do. And there's literally nothing I can't do if I could ask for help and do this. I, I it made me feel like, well, I'm going to be an Ironman. Like what, what is holding me back from that? Like physically I can like, you just have to keep promises and put a plan in place. So, so for me, signing up for an Ironman um, was important for a couple of reasons. And one was um, it was something that I didn't think I'd ever do or be, but now I thought like, well, there's nothing I cannot do or be. Mm-hmm. So I'll make this happen. And two was I wanted to do it by myself. I didn't want to join a, a, a group or a, um, a triathlon club or get help from anybody else because I thought to myself, I couldn't keep promises to myself for a decade. I'm going to prove to myself that I keep promises. And if I do, I'm going to achieve something pretty freaking awesome. And so I've put a plan in place myself and I, I did every one of my trainings um, by myself. Uh, I wasn't accountable to anybody else, which was just a huge thing for me. I wanted to be accountable to myself, not to anybody else. I didn't want the reason I got out of bed at 4am to be because I was going to let somebody else down. It would be letting myself down. And that's the fact that I wasn't going to get on my bike at 11 o'clock at night on the trainer. I wasn't going to meet anybody there. It was for me. I needed to do that to my, for myself. Um, and so for eight months, I, I didn't miss a single workout by myself. And, um, you know, in, in November of last year, I was sitting on the beach in Panama city, Florida, getting ready to, uh, to jump in the water for Ironman Florida. And it was, uh, it was one of the greatest moments of my life, not because of the feat of, uh, you know, uh, of a medal and, and something like that. It, it just, it was like a culmination of, of you, you have become something and you have learned something about yourself that I don't think you ever thought was possible. And, um, and I wanted that, I wanted that race to be like the hardest thing in the world. I wanted, I wanted it to break me in every way possible just to continue to prove to myself that like, there's nothing you can't do. If you have to walk, crawl across the line, you will just keep going because this is too important. Your why. I mean, a lot of people talk about their whys and things mm-hmm. like my, why was too freaking important. Like I didn't, it didn't matter what would have happened out there. I would have finished that race because it was too freaking important. You are definitely showing the pinnacle of your rise to the challenge personal story. So looking at the future, what does the future look like for you personally and professionally? What are you hoping to accomplish <laughs> in the next few years? Well, I mean, I think that uh, I have learned, I have learned the power of authenticity, like no doubt about it. I hid in shame and silence for 10 years. Couldn't look at myself, wasn't authentic with myself, nor anybody else in my life. My relationships weren't real. There's, there's no realness to a relationship. If you're not being honest, like they are interacting with a, a version of yourself that you've made up in the hopes that they'll like you more, that they'll, you know, accept you more. And, um, being able to be completely authentic with everybody in my life has changed every aspect of my life. And, uh, and so I do feel like there's nothing, there's still, there's still nothing I can do. And I've been met um, with more compassion and love by going out and sharing my story with people. Um, And I want to, I want to continue to be the story that I was looking for because for so long, I couldn't find my story when I'm struggling for 10 years, nobody was like me. 
Well, I, I realized that I think that the reason I couldn't find my story is because if you're a high functioning addict, there's a lot, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who have the same story as me or very similar. If you get help and you beat this, there's no reason for you to come back and like, let the world know that you just struggled for 10 years with addiction or with the drug abuse, because your life, you didn't lose your job. You didn't lose your wife. You didn't lose the things that are typical when you think of addiction. And so why go out and tell people about it? Like you can, it can be your own secret when your small circle of people that knew about it and you can move on and why put yourself through the ridicule and judgment. And I thought to myself, um, you know, two and a half years in, I, I was talking to my wife about, it. I was like, this has to be for something more. Like, like I had to go through that for something more. It cannot just be because man, that was a shitty 10 years and I beat it. And now it's awesome. Like that's, that's not good enough. I need to be the story of hope that I was looking for and couldn't find. And so, um, yeah, so, so the future for me, it's the fact that I want to go out and talk about this. The fact that I want to share my story because, um, because I want to be that, that, that story for somebody else who, who needs to hear it. I think that's the, the power of this show. A lot of listeners that listen to this, they sometimes have something similar that my guest is going through. And someone that's listening to us talk, they might be going through an addiction or something that they're going through, but we're not telling them how to live their life. We're talking about our experiences and maybe this will give them the power to be able to share that with someone that they love or someone in their life. So it's amazing that you are able to share your story and you're definitely inspiring so many people. The final question I want to ask you based on your journey and experience for someone that's listening to this interview, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles accomplish their goals and rise to the challenge. Everybody struggles every, whether it's drugs, alcohol, any, anything like everybody has their struggles and, um, and you are not alone in those. You are not alone. You feel alone. You feel isolated. You are not alone. And there's power in knowing that you're not alone. Um, and there's also power in, in asking for help in any of those things. Do not feel shame. Do not, you will feel shame. Everybody feels shame, but do not let that shame spiral ask for help. Um, and keep promises to yourself. That is through being, through being authentic and keeping promises to myself. It has changed everything that I can do and thought I was capable, capable of in my life. And whether make it small things, make it small things for on a daily basis. I do 200 pushups and 200 sit-ups every day for no other reason than it's a daily promise that I keep to myself. And I know that every day I'm going to do that. And I do not miss a day. And it is not as like, it is backbreaking, but it is a reminder to me every day that I keep a promise to myself and it continues to make me you know, build confidence in myself. And so take on small things, get physically active, keep promises in that way, because it's going to do nothing but help build your self-confidence and build you, um, give you the tools and the confidence to continue to strive for amazing, amazing things. And when you get through those struggles, the things you're struggling with, those things give you superpowers. The thing that you thought was the hardest thing in your life, if you can overcome that, you literally feel like you cannot, there's nothing you cannot do. So don't struggle in shame and in silence, ask for help and start keeping promises to yourself. Corey, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. Your story is going to inspire so many people and we're excited to see what the future looks like for you. Awesome, Alex. I appreciate you letting me share it with your, with your community. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow and subscribe to all major audio platforms and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel through the full-length episode and video format. What path will you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.